with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Well, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, helping you find your courage to reclaim that which has always, always, always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today, every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me, or if you want to leave me your comments about today's shows or other shows, I invite you to visit the website. That address is www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity, all one word. So www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. And if you uh, want to be a, a part of the show today, I invite you to call in. That number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And just in case you can't stick around for the whole show today, or maybe you would like to go back and listen to other shows, uh, you, you can go back into the archives, and uh, you could pull up any previous show that uh, you wish. And uh, also... Um, these uh, shows are uh, podcasted and are available for download on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon Music. And also want to uh, mention that uh, if you'd like to subscribe to these broadcasts, uh, you may do so by visiting the website and click on the subscription link. Now, you don't need to subscribe to access to shows, but your uh, support is greatly, greatly appreciated. Well, um, let's begin today just by kind of, um, you know, whenever we consider just what reclaiming authenticity is all about, um, I always have to place it in a larger context, you know, and, and that's the context of relationships, because it really doesn't matter, you know, who we are or where we were born or even to what family we were born into, you know, the whole world is just made up of different relationships personal relationships, professional relationships, so on and so forth. And indeed, we are uh, social beings who, you know, we spend the better part of our lives trying to make sense of our world and trying to find our place in the world. You know, where do we fit? Um, how can I interact with you? And how can you interact with me? And so on and so forth. And as social beings... It's often in the context of these relationships, as I said, personally or professionally, that we can experience tremendous pain and suffering. And these could be anything from overt acts of betrayal or cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us, or to be honest, if we have ever inflicted these things on somebody else, or to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time, many, many people bear the scars of a physical, a psychological, emotional, and even spiritual woundedness. And yet, here's the irony. Just as we experience our woundedness in relationships, 
it's also within the context of healthier relationships that we can find our healing. We can find our voice. We can reclaim our authenticity. And the difficulty then is often finding the courage within ourselves to discover all those things that have always been in us. You know, those those gifts and graces and skills and our uniqueness that we come into the world with. Because, um, you know, I still love to share with people that I am a firm believer that we come into this world with everything we already need for ourselves and for others. But through various experiences, uh, maybe we feel like we needed to give those parts away, if not the whole, of our uniqueness or its our thisness. And perhaps we felt as though we just couldn't simply live up to another person's expectation of us. And so we, we kind of hid that gift or we didn't allow them to see it ever again. Or maybe we even hid our uniqueness, our thisness from others in order to survive, uh, you know, some form of abuse or, you know, perhaps those aspects of ourselves, which we had once taken great pride in, we knew that we had a gift or a skill or a grace in a particular area. We may have realized that these things were taken away from us because we didn't have the strength to hang on to those things or to fight for those things. Well, either way, whenever we become aware that we have done these things, this is not uh, a shame or guilt issue. And it is simply an awareness that these things have happened. But all is not lost because it also takes tremendous courage to reclaim those parts of ourselves and to fully reclaim who we are. And we can reclaim our voice, our, our uniqueness, our thisness. And so this is what reclaiming authenticity is all about. Reclaiming authenticity just basically focuses on the integration of spirituality and our mental health. And it's all within the context of these relationships and the relationships that we have with ourselves, uh, relationships uh, that we have with others, and our relationship with God or the divine. So I hope you're having a good day today. I hope your heart is well. And I just wanted to say that I'll be taking your calls in a little while because I would really like to hear from you on today's subject. Smoke, mist, and visine. Okay. Now, uh, if you're like me, you already have a bottle of uh, Visine in the medicine cabinet in your bathroom. And uh, every now and then, you know, if your eyes get itchy, watery, dry, you know, things like that, a little bit of Visine will just clear it right out and uh, stop the itch or the burn. And maybe we just need to get a good night's sleep. But, um, you know, we all, you know, when we get down to it, we all want to see clearly whether we are driving in a car and we have to clear off our windshields or if we're around something that's kind of smoky, you know, if we're around a fire or something and the smoke gets into our eyes and our eyes become irritated, we start to rub them, things are a little cloudy and so forth, and we might have to even rinse out our eyes and so forth. Even if we're at the airport and we're told that, well, folks, because the visibility is lousy, the planes will be delayed until the sky's improved. Okay? Well, either way, good, clear vision is important to us, regardless of whether or not we use our eyes. 
Well, I'm sure all of us at one point or another may have heard of the old saying, the eyes are the window of the soul. The eyes are the window of the soul. And this is a very popular saying in some circles, and it's often been attributed to this theory of psychoanalysis, whereby you can tell what a person is thinking and feeling just by looking at their eyes. Okay, kind of like the eyes give you away, you know, like you you can read it all over a person's face, but you can just tell by the various expressions that the eyes have, whether or not a person is guilty or if they're hurt or if they're excited or, you know, filled with joy or whatever. The eyes are very expressive. And, and, you know, it's fascinating. Many, many studies have been done in this area of human development, and uh, they all come to the, the same conclusion, pretty much, that, you know, what we see in our pupils and the overall shape of the eye and even the movement of the eyebrows are all, you know, communicating our emotions, And this is something I have fun sharing with kids about, you know, when they're like, well, I have to wear a mask, you know, and, you know, it's like, well, your school wants you to wear a mask. And, well, how do I know, you know, how can other people know that I'm smiling? And I say, you know, to them, usually like, okay, go home, put your mask on and stand in front of the mirror and then smile and watch your eyes. And the facial muscles that we have pull the eyes down. They soften the eyes whenever we smile. So even though we're smiling and, you know, nobody can really see our teeth or, you know, our grin or whatever, uh, they can tell that we are smiling just by looking at how our eyes and, and eyebrows move. So they always have fun with that, and then we have to practice you know, that with on each other. And they, like I said, they have a lot of fun with that because they learn something new about the, the muscles in the face and so forth. Well, um, this concept of, uh, you know, watching another person's eyes and, you know, just kind of checking in every now and then to see if a person is listening. Um, this is a concept that's called mirroring. And it's the, these studies came out often, you know, between a parent-child relationship. And uh, it involves a parent's reflection of a child's thoughts and feelings. And if you've ever taken care of a, a toddler, a baby, you know, the, 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 the kids are just watching the eyes. And if they're even starting to walk and uh, they, they look back to see, okay, are you still there? Are you watching me? Is it safe? Am I going to be okay? And they're looking for that kind of acceptance and that validation. And over time, what usually happens is, you know, the child, you know, internalizes that validation. And um, as the child gets older, you know, and enters adult life, they have more of this self-acceptance and self-awareness. But it all starts in early, 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 early childhood, newborn, infancy, toddlerhood, and so forth, okay? Well, while it's true that our eyes can tell us a lot about who we are and in some way are that window that opens up to the soul of a person, there are times that we are often led to believe that our eyes and other senses are the only way that we can verify what truth is. 
And I, I sat with this, you know, for the longest time, and I just, you know, I, I, I just said to myself, well, the eyes are the window to the soul. That's just one direction. I, I wonder what would happen if we kind of flipped that expression of the eyes are the window to the soul around, and, and we allowed ourselves to see ourselves as souls, and how differently we would see and hear and feel and smell and taste the world around us. And so let's begin with the fact that we are all souls with a body. Okay? We have a body, but we're not the body. Okay? We care for the body, we feed it, we rest it when it's tired, but we're not the body. Okay? And ironically, this mirroring behavior that begins in early, early childhood doesn't end with childhood. And it also extends into adulthood and in some cases continues to the very day that we die. Let's say old, 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 old age. Okay. And it's just quite common that we often look to others for some sort of validation or some form of comparison or some form of affirmation, etc. And others look at us for exactly the same thing. So we just have this mirroring going on all the time where, you know, some people are comparing and we're comparing and we're looking for a validation and, and um, even without words, you know, the eyes are very, very expressive. Okay. But when we get caught up doing this and we, we are always looking outside of ourselves for that validation, for that affirmation, when we do this, we often end up settling for versions of ourselves that are so limited and inaccurate. And they're inaccurate because these versions are not coming from within ourselves. Instead, like I said, we are looking outside ourselves for validation. And quite frankly, how we see ourselves and how we see others and, and how we view our world often comes from this distorted template that keeps us from seeing ourselves and others as souls. So to be able to see ourselves for who we truly are, we have to have, you know, first the courage to understand what is it that's being reflected back to us. Well, how many of you have ever been in a mall or, you know, shopping mall or department store or something, and you notice all of the mirrors around you? You know, they're, they're strategically placed throughout the stores. And these mirrors are not put there so that you can check yourself out or you take time out and comb your hair or to see if you have anything in your teeth. No. These mirrors are actually placed around a store to deter people from shoplifting. Because again, studies have shown that people are less likely to commit crimes if they know they are being watched, even if it's coming from their own reflection. So that's very ingenious, very smart and effective. And mirrors are not the only objects that show a reflection. Glass also shows us an image. But again, this too is limited in showing us who we truly are. Okay. Well, as I was preparing for today's show, I was really reminded of how traumatic experiences often distort this psychological and emotional mirroring that goes on in humanity. You know, this is just something where 
we, you know, if we're hurting in a particular area or we're emotionally wounded in a particular area of our lives, we're going to see the world through that distorted template. And that's going to go out in this mirroring effect as people look at us, that's going to be mirrored to them, as well as vice versa. You know, whatever a person has gone through or they're still, you know, uh, reeling from an emotional wounding or psychological wounding or whatever. Um, and, and people have a tendency to look out of their own woundedness. That's going to distort this image that we pick up as well, especially if we're not strong enough to affirm ourselves that we have to look to somebody else to tell us who we are. Well, as I was saying, I was preparing for this show today, and um, I was reminded of how traumatic experiences distort this mirroring that goes on um, throughout humanity. And earlier this week, there was a remembrance of Crystal Knock. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this term before or understand that it is a very significant historical event. Um, Crystal Knock is also known as the Night of Broken Glass. And it occurred about 83 years ago, you know, starting on November 9th and running through November 10th, 1938. And this was a time when following the assassination of a German official, Nazis in Germany just went wild. They torched synagogues. They vandalized Jewish homes and schools and businesses, and they killed close to 100 um, Jewish men and women. And in the aftermath of this crystal knock, some 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to Nazi concentration camps. And German Jewish men and women had been subjected to repressive policies ever since 1933. And that's when the Nazi party leader, you know, Hitler, became chancellor of Germany. However, prior to this night of broken glass, prior to Kristallnacht, the, these Nazi policies had been primarily nonviolent. But after Kristallnacht, conditions for the German Jewish men and women grew increasingly worse. And during World War II, Hitler and the Nazis implemented their so-called final solution to what they referred to as the Jewish problem. And they carried out the systematic murder of some six million European Jews in what has been, you know, been come to known as the Holocaust. And soon after Hitler became Germany's chancellor back in 1933, he began instituting policies uh, that isolated German Jews and um, subjected them to persecution. And among other things, Hitler's Nazi party, you know, which espoused extreme German nationalism and anti-Semitism, commanded that all Jewish businesses be boycotted. And all Jews, uh, Jewish men and women, be dismissed from civil service post. And I think it was like the late spring of 1933, the, the writings of, of Jewish and other un-German authors were burned in this communal ceremony at Berlin's Opera House. And within two years, German businesses were publicly announcing that they no longer serviced Jews, Jewish men and Jewish women. And by September of 1935, the Nuremberg Laws 
decreed that only Aryans, uh, you know, could be full German citizens. And therefore, it became illegal for Aryans and, and Jewish men and women to marry or have extramarital affairs. And even to this day, 83 years later, Kristallnacht is remembered as a time of devastation and destruction of a people. And when I talk with people who have been uh, through you know, a traumatic experience of one form or another, a, a physical, emotional, spiritual, and or psychological abuse, the one sound that often comes up in these conversations is the sound of broken glass. Okay, and I remember counseling a very, very young girl. She was just like very preteen, and um, just got on the subject one day with her of like, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And she wanted to be a state trooper, and like she was like four foot nothing, little tiny, you know, just petite girl. But she had a hard life, and ironically, I was seeing her for anger management because she would always get into these fights and she was constantly being suspended and so on and so forth. And I just, I asked her, you know, one day when we were um, having therapy, I, I just, you know, out of curiosity, what's your earliest memory? Like how far back can you go? What do you remember the most? And she said it was the sound of glass breaking. It was this mirror that was just like, just was shattering. And, um, I knew there was something there, so we talked a little bit more about this. And here she was four or five years old, something like that. And her bedroom was separated by a wall. And on the other side of the wall was her mother's bedroom. And she was just awakened one night with just the sound of this mirror just being shattered. And she then told me later that she found out that, you know, this mirror broke because that was the first time her mom was thrown up against this mirror because she had a very abusive boyfriend. And so this girl grew up thinking that, you know, I now need to protect not only myself, but others. And I want to protect them from people who destroy things or are abusive and so on and so forth. But this sound of broken glass, this broken mirror in her mind was just, you know, it, it just um, almost like cemented in her. And uh, we, we talked about that in, in just great lengths. And um, when we think about it, you know, even our own lives today, in, in general, just the, the sound of glass breaking often startles us with this eerie feeling of, of, you know, that just makes our hair on the back of our necks stand up. I mean, there's no other sound like it in the world. And even if we're in a restaurant and the waiter or the waitress drops a glass, have you ever noticed that everybody stops talking and everybody looks to see what happened? And when the waiter or waitress is then like goes, gets the broom and, you know, the, the pail and is busy sweeping up the shards of broken glass, everybody goes back to eating and talking and paying no more, no more mind to it. Now, it's not so easy to just simply sweep up the mess and go about our business. You know, especially when it comes to hearing broken glass linked to an abusive situation. Well, 
I believe I've shared with this audience that I keep a jar of broken glass on my desk. And every now and then I pick up this jar, I take a look at it, I shake it, I turn it over in my hands, and I listen to the shards of glass making kind of the sound of like a crunchy, clinking sound. And I do this to remind myself of the aftermath of a traumatic event or, or traumatic events and you know the desperate need people have to rebuild their lives. But how do we begin this process? I mean, you know, let's face it, we're not talking about a jigsaw puzzle here, and we're not talking about trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. But, but how do we begin rebuilding our lives when all that we see is, is brokenness around us or brokenness within us? And, and how do we begin rebuilding our lives when we've lived so long with broken promises and broken dreams? You know, and, and how do we begin to rebuild our lives with the desire to, I want to go back to the way things used to be, when all we know now is that's not even a possibility? Well, the first thing we have to do, we have to grieve. We have to mourn this. We have to accept and learn that it will take time to recover and heal. I'm always um, reminded of this one passage in the Bible that says that God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I am so grateful for that. You know, there's an old story about an emperor who had a very expensive and a rare vase. I think he got it as a gift or something. And one day it was accidentally knocked over and it shattered into hundreds of pieces. So the emperor called together all of his artisans and potters and asked, you know, who might be able to put this vase back together again? And one by one, various potters came forward and then one by one realized they couldn't fix the vase. And for their failure, they, you know, paid dearly with the cost of their lives. Well, one day, an old monk who lived in the mountains outside of the town, um, he came to the castle along with his pupil, and uh, he came to where the emperor was, and he asked to see this vase that was just broken into hundreds of pieces. And uh, he picked them up, he looked at them, and just kind of, mm, okay, all right. And one by one, he gathered up these pieces and just put them in a sack, and, and he said, uh, your highness, I can do this. I will rebuild your vase. And everybody was sad because, you know, they, they knew, you know, the cost of like, well, what if you can't, you're going to die. But uh, very confidently, the uh, monk, you know, just scooped up these pieces and, uh, and he and his pupil headed back to the mountains and he began to set upon fixing the vase in his work area. And meticulously, the monk worked for weeks, putting this vase back together. I mean, all hours of the day, morning, night, and so forth, till one day he was finished. So, you know, alas, you know, came the day where it's like, okay, you know, so he and his people headed back down the mountain to see the emperor and to present him with this vase. And to everyone's astonishment, 
they couldn't believe that this was the same vase that shattered into hundreds of tiny pieces. And, and they just said, this, this can't be the same vase, but it is. How can this be? And like I said, everybody was just astonished and thrilled, and the emperor just couldn't believe it himself. And so the emperor handsomely rewarded the monk, and he and his pupil headed back to the mountain, you know, their mountain abode. Well, the next day, the pupil was cleaning up his master's workbench when he noticed a small pile of leftover pieces of this vase. So he didn't know what to do, you know, and he quickly ran to his master and he asked, how in the world could you reassemble this vase all the while leaving out so many other pieces? And the monk smiled and replied simply that when you set your heart to accomplishing something beautiful, anything is possible. And perhaps over time, we see how some of our broken pieces of our lives can be put back together. But let us always remember that after a traumatic event, our lives are never going to be the same. And we simply cannot go back to the way things were because we're different now. But we can always rebuild something even more beautiful in its place. Well, I would really love to hear your heart on these matters. So again, if you'd like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. I'll be back with you in one minute. Welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you're listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, just I want to share a little bit about next week's show. That's uh, that's actually going to put us on <laughs> November the 19th. So just out, you know, just inside a week outside of Thanksgiving. But uh, I'm going to be sharing a little bit about uh, transforming negative energy, just continuing on with the theme of, you know, the alchemy of the spirit. And uh, this is always a topic that's uh, been fascinating for me, and it is so true, just uh, the transformational aspects of not just on like a, a chemical, you know, ch uh, changing chemical compounds and, and so forth, or, you know, changing one thing into another, but it has this powerful teaching of how we transform into something better. 
Or in other words, there is so much more to us than even what we realize today. So I invite you to tune in to next week. And I'm talking about the uh, alchemy of transformation. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about how I was reminded you know, of how traumatic experiences often distort you know, this psychological and emotional mirroring that goes on in humanity. You know, it's just something that every child, um, you know, all of us grew up with. You know, we constantly look to others for that affirmation or that, uh, okay, this is safe. Go ahead and do it. I'm right behind you. You'll be fine. And um, over time, we internalize this. Um, but still, it is uh, a mirroring that goes on uh, till the day we die. You know, we are constantly looking at others, and even if we're aware of it or not, uh, for that affirmation or a comparison or something. And there, people are are doing it when they look at us. You know, they're just like, "Am, am I doing this okay? Do I look okay or whatever?" But you know, in a healthy sense, we outgrow this. In a healthy sense, we internalize these affirmations and we learn how to, um, you know, we stop comparing and, uh, we just internalize, um, you know, just a healthy, healthy self esteem. Well, anyway, as I said, you know, earlier in the show, I was talking about how I was reminded how traumatic experiences, you know, distort this mirroring that goes on and how trauma, um, just lays over top of us, this distorted template where it just distorts our 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 sight, our spiritual sight, and and sometimes physical sight as well. And earlier this week, I had mentioned that there was a remembrance of the historical event Kristallnacht, and it's also known as the Night of Broken Glass. And and this occurred 83 years ago, between November 9th and November 10th. And um, a lot of our Holocaust survivors are are now getting old, um, and they were kids, perhaps, you know, 83 years ago, and then some, um, you know, when this was going on. But, again, the ones I talked to, they never forget the sound of broken glass. And so Kristallnacht has always been known as the night of broken glass. And as I had also said, this was a time that followed, quickly followed the assassination of a German official. And this is where um, the Nazis in Germany just went and torched synagogues and vandalized Jewish homes and schools and businesses uh, were just shut down and just ransacked and you know its windows were smashed and so forth and they killed just you know so many Jewish men and women and you know in in the early aftermath of Kristallnacht there was about 30,000 Jewish men that were arrested and sent to the Nazi concentration camps and some people believe like this was the the you know Kristallnacht was what kicked off the holocaust um but um Again, it to this day, Kristallnacht is remembered as a time of devastation and destruction of a people. 
And whenever I talk with people who have been through a traumatic experience of one form or another, the emotional or spiritual, physical, even psychological abuse, they often talk about the sound of breaking glass or shattered glass or something. And that, just in general, just the sound of a glass breaking or a window breaking often startles us. And it, it creates this eerie feeling in us that, as I said, you know, makes the hair on, on the back of our necks stand up. It, it just it does something to us. And um, even if we're out to eat or let's say we're home, we're making a meal and somebody drops a glass of water or something and it just shatters, everybody just stops. And they look and they see what had happened. As I said, breaking glass just has a, a, just its own unique sound. Well, in the aftermath of these and other traumatic events, um, you know, we have to begin the rebuilding process. And um, as I share with many of my clients who are grieving in one form or another, first thing I share with them is don't let anybody try to put a timeline on this for you. In other words, I don't care if they think it, you're grieving too long. That's up to you. Now, there might be other, some other factors involved to take a look at to see what's going on, but nobody should be able to tell you that, you know, like, oh, okay, in two months you should be over this. Or, okay, look, it's been a year, so what are you waiting for? Um, that's just that's just being cold-hearted. You just simply cannot place time limits on how much and how often and frequent and so forth a person grieves. And, you know, and, and whenever we get on the subject of, well, how do we rebuild our lives? Um, you know, a lot of people get this image of a jigsaw puzzle or like maybe it's like a Rubik's Cube. We just kind of like turn and turn and shift some things and it'll all fall into place. And it's like, that's not it at all. Um, because you know, part of the healing process is to look at, let's say, broken glass and, you know, kind of liken it to our brokenness. Where do we see the sharp edges in our life? Where do we see the shards? How many shards? And, and, and how are these similar to the broken promises that we, you know, experienced? And what about the broken dreams where there's like really big chunks of broken glass? And, and how do we begin to rebuild our lives? And, and all the while, you know, in the back you know, of our, our minds, we're thinking, you know, well, if I do this, I can just go back to the way things used to be and it'll all be good. And uh, just a stark reality of we can't do that. It's not even a possibility. We want to. But it's not a possibility because we're, ever sh we're forever shaped by our losses. We're forever shaped, not as something inevitable and, you know, this is the way you're always going to be from this point on, but we simply cannot go back to the way we were. Things have so radically changed in us and our outlook on life. Well, whether or not we have had a traumatic experience. How many times do we often struggle with seeing the presence of God in this world? Okay, and um, this often is part of the healing process of something, you know, after something very traumatic. And, you know, 
a lot of people ask, where was God? And I don't see God right now. I cry out to God and all I hear is silence. And where is God? I just don't see God enough in this world. And perhaps part of our difficulty in trying to find God in the world is because we're we're unwilling or maybe we're still wounded and we just we can't do this where we can shift our focus. And perhaps, you know, in, in other, you know, retrospects, um, or some respects, I should say, uh, perhaps we're just too busy to quiet ourselves, to listen for God's still small voice. Or, um, and let's just take this a little bit deeper here, um, you know, how many times do we wrongly assume that in order to see God, we must first make God conform to our vision? our philosophies, our worldviews, our prayers. You know, in other words, if, if God really wants a relationship with me, then it's going to have to be on my terms. And this is simply not the case. I, th- I think I had mentioned um, in the months so far uh, that back in the early 90s, there was a, a shift that went on in the field of psychology. And, and prior to this, the focus was solely on like diagnosis and identifying what's wrong with people in order you know, to match the, the diagnosis with treatment plans to help people heal and improve. But ever since the early 1990s, um, this positive psychology encouraged people and mental health professionals to focus not on what's wrong with them, but rather they're encouraged to identify with what's right with them. You know, find the positive gifts, the graces, the skills, and character traits that you already have the very best parts of yourself, the, the, the parts of you that are maybe even lying dormant. Okay? Because the more we discover about ourselves, the more we discover that there's so much more to discover about ourselves. And in this way, people are really empowered toward a more solution-focused approach to their problems. Instead of just sitting around with you know, throwing up their hands and saying, like, I don't know what to do. It's like, you have it within you already. Let's go find it. And another tool I use that you know just goes hand in glove with this positive psychology. Um, it comes from an assessment, you know, that uh, helps people discover their character strengths. And it comes from Peterson and Seligman, and uh, they've identified 24 categories. And uh, of course, this is you know down at the boys of University of Penn, and um, they had put together a website. It's www.v as in Victor, V-I-A, character.org. Okay, so www.v-i-a, character.org, dot O-R-G. Okay, and that takes you to their website, and um, you can read all about the background and the history of this. And I use this, I use this website and this assessment all the time with people who just feel like they have nothing else in them. And this has actually been used greatly in helping people overcome and work through traumatic experiences, because again, you're not looking at what's wrong with a person; you're looking at what's right with them. You're looking at the strengths that they already came into the world with and how to use those strengths as a source of healing 
as a source of strength, as a source of encouragement, you know, and just what does this look like on a daily 24-7 basis? And so um, the authors of this assessment, you know, Peterson and Seligman, they identified 24 categories. And I'll just rattle off a few of these um, the categories of, you know, positive character traits such as appreciation for beauty or bravery or creativity. And there's curiosity with life and forgiveness and fairness, gratitude, authenticity etc. And as people explore these positive character traits, um, the, the, the assessment that you take, you get the results right away, and it just ranks all 24 categories. It's not that you're lacking in one or you don't have one. Everybody has these 24 character traits, and, but they're ranked in, according to not just how you answer the questions, but they're ranked according to which ones are your go-tos first, which ones, you know, that you don't have to think about, but you just go right to your creativity or forgiveness or your authenticity or your bravery or whatever else it might be. And so I just work with, like, say, the top five or the top 10 of these character strengths with people and just helping them identify, you know, that, hey, look, there's more to you than perhaps you even realize today. And how can your bravery or creativity or forgiveness or authenticity help you heal from what you have gone through? And as people explore these positive character traits, they're certainly empowered, maybe for the first time in their lives, to name what gives their lives meaning and purpose. And yet this awareness is, is just the beginning. You know, if we recognize positive character traits in us, chances are that our ancestors, you know, those who have come before us, have those things as well. And, I mean, in some cases, trauma wasn't the only thing that may have been handed down to us, you know, that intergenerational trauma, because we have also received positive character strengths or strong work ethics and resiliency, just to name a few. I mean, either way, to truly live our lives to our greatest potential is also to realize who we are as souls as well as, you know, that our gifts and graces are meant for the benefit of others. So if we identify, you know, the character strength of creativity, well, that's going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to show that to somebody else. That's going to benefit somebody else. Or forgiveness, that helps another person and us, but it helps another person. So again, these character traits are always placed in the context of relationships. So no matter what we do, uh, it, it always brings us back to our personal and professional relationships. And there's just many, many people who may never realize who they are as souls, uh, and let alone being unable to embrace such character strengths in themselves. And perhaps they were never allowed to realize their potentials, or maybe they hid these character strengths out of a fear or rejection or even shame. Um, regardless, these positive character traits are in all of us. Uh, we just have to find them, and then we have to claim them or reclaim them. Well, down throughout history, 
uh, you've heard me share before, and I'm going to talk more about this uh, next week, that physical alchemy, this physical transformation, uh, was always concerned with altering and transforming chemical properties within solid matter, such as changing lead into gold. But let's take the subject of uh, alchemy and put it in the spiritual realm. You know, that the spiritual alchemy is concerned with freeing our vast spiritual self, which is being hindered within us by the unrefined parts of ourselves, such as our fears or uh, limited personal beliefs or self-loathing or anything that just limits our understanding or distorts our images, which could then be traced back to having gone through something very traumatic. And yet, spiritual alchemy is vastly more multifaceted. It's probably the best word I can give it. And it's ongoing. You know, it's this continuous purification of our hearts, much in the same way that a you know an, an ironsmith is going to turn up the heat, you know, beneath this hopper that contains a raw material or a metal, and as the heat is increased, this dross or the impurities you know come to the surface, and his job or her job is to just skim those impurities off, and you know it makes the metal purer than what it was before. And then this process is repeated over and over and over again until the metal reaches its finest purity that it can be. And if we pay attention, we, we realize that we too are going through a process of a spiritual alchemy of our authenticity. I mean, and how often does it feel like the heat's being turned up on us through, let's say, our past or our current events, or even the past and current events throughout the world? And, and therefore, when we go through the process of this spiritual awakening, let's say sooner or later, we are confronted with the fact that there seems to be so much more to ourselves than, than the reality we are living in and what we have grown accustomed to. And as we go through life, and, and depending on our experiences, we start to question what used to be true for us. You know, and, and here's an example. that, like Ever since childhood, we have a certain way in which we see ourselves and others and God and the world at large. Okay? So this is going back to, again, the mirroring process that happens in early childhood here and toddlerhood. You know, we pick up a sense of who we are by how others see us and how they mirror that back to us. And again, if there's a distortion in that person, um, they're going to give us an, a distorted view of ourselves. Okay? And when we have gone through an experience that, you know, at some point in our lives that shakes us up or shatters those assumptions... We feel as though nothing makes sense anymore. I mean, we, we just don't seem to have a sense of our bearings. And we just don't know, okay, somebody point the direction because I don't know which way is up. And this can be very unnerving. You know, this is a, you know, just a very disturbing place we find ourselves in. Especially if we feel like all of what we have known is starting to crumble and evaporate all around us where we can become so unsure of not only ourselves, but also whether or not if all we see is all that there is. 
And yet, we can weather these storms. And as we do this, we're just also going to discover something greater than ourselves is tugging at our soul. I call it a stronger nudge from God or a more intense dimensional energy or even a hunger that resonates deep, deep, deep within us by compelling us to go and search and discover the vastness of who we truly are. And as we go on this journey, we're going to discover, we're going to come across this sooner or later, that there are things we simply need to let go of. We're going to identify with those things, and then we're just going to evaluate them and say, "Mm, don't need those things anymore. They just do not serve me. And when we do that, we're able to transform in, in order to embrace higher, more intense energy dimensions. In other words, rising above those negative mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual triggers that keep us from experiencing the fullness of unconditional love. Well, I want to leave you with, I think, a very important writing that helps us kind of start this process of what in me feels distorted and and how do I see myself in this world? And this comes from uh, something out of The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. And he writes, as long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all the power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you are good looking and and I love you if you are intelligent and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much and buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me since it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying and failing and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Everybody, please be safe out there. Please behave yourselves. And until we talk again, may God hold each and every one of us in the palm of God's hand. Take care. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.